turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We normally work our way through a book of the Bible, having finished John a few weeks ago. We normally go one passage at a time, but in between series, we often just take a, a few weeks to consider some needful topics from the Word and try to encourage and equip our hearts and our minds to walk after and follow Christ. As we've kind of rounded the corner from October into November, though we're almost halfway through November, believe it or not, we quickly approach, as you know, the holiday season and Thanksgiving Day is going to be upon us before we know it. And then Christmas is soon coming. And this season before us is one of receiving and of feasting, which is all well and good. It's a a good and joy-filled season of, of receiving and of feasting. I want to encourage you over the next two weeks to think counterculturally with some truths from Scripture in light of the season we enter. In particular, I want to focus your attention on the truth of giving and the truth of fasting. In light of receiving and feasting, let's consider their counterparts giving and fasting. I think a right and biblical understanding and a growing biblical practice in both of those areas will actually increase your joy this holiday season. It'll help you to fight the the pull of the culture to convince you that you would have more joy if you had more stuff, and that you would have more happiness if you ate more food or ate more better food. But we need this truth of giving and this truth of fasting to fix our eyes singularly on Jesus. I want to draw your attention this morning to the area of giving. And I realize as we start the optics of this, I I realize that as we prepare for the sacrifice of praise offering next Sunday, that somehow this is Pastor Matt's pep rally sermon to get you to write a bigger check next Sunday and thereby build the addition to our building. I want you to know that's not at all in my heart. That's not how this happened, actually. I had actually planned this sermon, uh, little snippet sermon series, long before we had planned when the sacrifice of praise offering was going to be. And in fact, Originally, I had this sermon on giving planned for after the sacrifice of praise offering next Sunday. The offering is going to be earlier and the sermon is going to be later, but just with other service planning considerations, this was the best day for this sermon. So I just want you to know, this is not about you writing a bigger check next week, all right? What this is about at its heart is to encourage you and to equip you in what you're already doing, the regular practice of, of giving to our Lord and to the needs around you. I want you to know the joy promised by our Lord in giving that is better than receiving. Giving is obviously of your time and of your talents and of your treasure. Usually when Scripture speaks in the category of giving, it's speaking of giving of our treasure, of our money, of our finances. And as you think about that reality, there's probably lots of questions that pop up in your head, and you're wondering, am I going to answer all of those in one sermon? And you know, I'm not, because I never do. But lots of questions come to your head, like, who's this guy to talk to me about something so personal as giving? That's none of his business. That's between me and the Lord. This is a private matter. He doesn't need to meddle here. Well, the simplest way to answer that is, first of all, you know, I'm not going to meddle. I'm not going to open up your checkbook and see what you do. I'm going to give you principles from the word and encourage your heart in that way. But the simplest answer is that Jesus in his teaching in the Gospels spent more time on money and possessions than he did on heaven and hell combined. 
because he saw the obvious connection between your spirituality and your spending, between your faith and your finances. They're intricately linked and they cannot be divorced. Part of how we follow Jesus, and in fact, a major part of how we follow Jesus and walk in a manner worthy of the calling he's placed upon our lives is how we handle what he's given us to steward in our possessions and in our money. There's other questions you might be asking, things like, how much should I give? Should I plan to give a 10% portion of my income, or is that an Old Testament practice of the tithe? Or, or maybe you're wondering, how often should I give? Or maybe the question comes to mind, to what should I give? Or what should be my heart posture when I give? And all those questions have biblical answers. Maybe as I ask them, you thought of texts that answer those kinds of questions. If we tried to answer all those today, we'd be here till Christmas, so we're not going to do that. I want to hone in on one question and try to answer that to the best of my ability in the few short minutes we have. And it's a question which comes from the text in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, we're parachuting in for one verse, but just to give you kind of a crash course on the context, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's carrying the gift from the Macedonian churches to the poor, impoverished church of Jerusalem. And as he goes, he stops along the way to visit churches that have been planted, and one of those is Ephesus. And in Acts 20, he's speaking with the elders of Ephesus, and everyone knows that this is likely the last time they're going to see Paul. Now, we know the rest of the story. He goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, he eventually appeals to Caesar, he's sent to Rome. He then is martyred in Rome for the sake of the gospel and his witness for Christ. So this is the last conversation Paul has with these Ephesian elders. And Ephesus was a, a massively important church in the New Testament time. Seven of the thirteen or seven of the twenty-seven letters are written to Ephesus or to the people involved at Ephesus. It's a massive amount of scripture given to this church. And Paul, on his way, wants to exhort and encourage them to be good elders as they shepherd the body in Ephesus. He's warning them of the challenges that will come and even rise up in their own midst. And he says, the pattern for your life is to be one like mine. And you know, I did not covet your silver or your gold, but I worked among you hard with my hands so that I could minister to the needs of others. He says that in Acts 20, verse 35. Look at that with me. He says this, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is an axiom, a, a truth statement that Paul used to live his life by. This is what he built his discipleship upon. His following of Jesus in every category is informed by this truth. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now I would ask you, is that true? But Jesus said it, so it has to be true. And it's in Scripture, so obviously it's true. So to be more pointed, do you believe that that is true? That it's more blessed to give than to receive? And now to meddle a little bit, does your life reflect that truth? Can you see by your by your life, your use of time, your use of, of the talents the Lord's entrusted to you, the use of the treasure he's 
given to your account, your possessions and your money? Does your use of those things reflect this truth, that it is more blessed to give than to receive? I wonder as I read this text and have thought through it, the question that keeps coming to my mind is, how is this true? So if this is true, which it is, then we should be able to delineate and figure out how is it true? How is it better to give than to receive? Because that's counter human nature, right? Tell me I'm not the only one who thinks that. I'd much rather be given something in my, hum in my humanity than to sacrifice and give to someone else. But Jesus says the exact opposite. It's actually better for you to give to someone than to receive from someone. And so as you think through that, you must ask, how is that true? I want to lay before you this morning six ways that giving is better than receiving. I know six. You just took a deep breath. You know you're in for the long haul. It was originally 15. So count your lucky stars. It's just six. And I will move fast. It's better to give than to receive because by giving, we worship God. By giving, we love God. By giving, we love others. By giving, we invest well. By giving, we grow in contentment. And by giving, we please God. Consider that first one with me, that giving is better than receiving because by giving, we worship God. Every financial decision you make is a spiritual one. How you choose to use your money is a display of what you value most. Recently, my son was asking me a question from an assignment from one of his teachers to interview his parents about money. And he just one of the questions was, what are some principles that you live by, that you've learned about money. And the first thing that came to my mind, just impromptu, was that it's taken me a long time to learn this, but I finally figured out that money is a way to express what I value. Money gives me the ability to, to treasure one thing over another. And so when I pay for something, I'm, I'm valuing that to that amount. And if it's higher than I value it to be, I won't buy it. But money gives me the, the power, the ability to express that which I value. By giving, we make a conscious choice to value what God values and to live in response to His grace upon our lives. That's exactly how Jesus taught His disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He was going to send them out to do ministry. He tells them, go and, and heal the sick and raise the dead and heal the leper and bless people. And as he tells them to do that, he, he roots their ministry in this principle. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. In other words, you're going to go bless others because you've been blessed. And, and don't charge for that. Everything you're going to go do for others is because you've been given it by me. Therefore, go and give freely to others. In other words, God's grace upon them was the action and their giving was the reaction. That's exactly what it should be true for us. God's grace is the, the active part in this equation. And our giving is a reaction to that grace. We give freely because we have been given to freely. This is exactly what we see fleshed out in 2 Corinthians 8. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, the about the church in Macedonia that had been used so amazingly to raise up a good offering for the hurting Christians in Jerusalem. 
2 Corinthians verse, chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You probably should have just had some wires crossed in your spiritual mind. How do those things add up? One plus one does not equal two. A severe test of affliction and extreme poverty does not, in our thinking, equal sacrificial generosity, a wealth of generosity. But for the Macedonian Christians, it did. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They didn't have to take an offering at that church service. People came in asking, can we give to this? Will you take this with you? Well, we, want, we want them to be blessed with what we have, even of the little that we have. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of giving also. Is that what he says? In this act of sacrifice also? No, in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What, what was compelling the believers in the churches of Macedonia to, to give so generously? Was it their abundant supply? No, they were extremely poor. Was it their affluence and easy life? No, they were in a severe test of affliction. Was it their desire to be extra spiritual, to, to gain some influence with Paul and the apostles? No, it was, it was on their own accord. As they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And all of it was fueled by their heart level understanding of the grace they had received in Christ. That though Jesus was rich, he became poor for their sake, so that by his poverty they might become rich in him. And so because that was true, they could give until it hurt them financially as an expression of their spiritual wealth in Christ. In other words, their giving was an act of worship. It was a way to express their response to the grace of God through Jesus for their salvation. It was a reflection of the immensity of what they had received already in Christ. So every time you choose to give, you're making a worship decision. Your use of money is an expression of, of what you're valuing in the moment. And as you give, it's better than receiving because by giving, you worship God. Showing tangibly that God is worthy. That you're in full submission to Him. That you value what He values. It's also an expression of worship because you're admitting that you're not the owner. You're just the manager of the resources He's given to your care. When you give, you're declaring that your money is not your own, but God's. That's what the psalmist says, right? The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, 1. 
Is this also what the prophet Haggai records for us from the words of the mouth that God said the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord their God? Isn't this what Paul drives home, not just in our finances, but in every part of our lives? In 1 Corinthians 6, when he says, you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. So your very life, spiritually, physically, every aspect of it is not yours. Therefore, it's not under your control. You're just a a steward of it, given it by God for His work and His glory. Randy Alcorn says in his little book, The Treasure Principle, which if you're going to read one book on finances, you should read more. But if you're going to read one, read that one. If you're going to read one book on giving, read that book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn. If you don't have a copy, let me know. I'll buy you one as an expression of my obedience to this text. I'd be happy to supply that for you. It'd be so helpful for you to read. He says this, the act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God, not about us. It's saying, I am not the point. He is the point. He does not exist for me. I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. It breaks the chains of mammon that would enslave me. Giving is better than receiving because by giving we worship God. It's also better because by giving we love God. I know this is a parallel thought, a synonymous thought. but I think there's enough of a difference to draw it out. Giving is a real and tangible way to display that we we love God and we love Him more than anything else. As we heard last Sunday, what discipleship is all about is the pursuit of the great command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as we love ourselves. And that most certainly encompasses our money, right? That's just not in the intangible categories of, of how you think and how you respond to your emotions and your feelings and what you say and, and how you act towards others. That, that is in the, the real life world of how you use your dollars. Good stewardship is an issue of our love for God. It's not the only issue of our love for God, but it's a primary one. Money tempts us with the power to feed our fleshly desires, to live for the here and now, for this life only. Isn't that exactly what John warned us about in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, where he says, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, John says, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. One of the easiest ways for us to to love the world and feed these sinful desires, isn't it through our use of money? To take the resources given and and spend them on our lusts? And what giving does is it runs upstream to those desires like a, a trout in a rushing mountain river. Giving cuts off the lure of attaining more stuff with our money and it, it puts our heart back on a right love for God. And those two, as you know in your own experience, are seemingly always in tension in this life, aren't they? Loving God and loving self. 
As Jesus so clearly said, you, you can't love both. You can't serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, or you're devoted to one and you're despising the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. And so when we give, we tangibly fight against this love for the world by choosing in our giving to love God. We're disrupting the gravitational pull of all of our stuff that wants us to orbit our life around it. And we're choosing through our giving to be knocked off center back to the gravitational pull of God and His work. As Alcorn says later in that same book, giving in any form breaks affluenza's fever. Giving in any form breaks affluenza's fever. Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15, that because we've been loved by Christ, we can't help but love Him through sacrificial giving of ourselves and our stuff. He says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. And there's lots of ways that you don't live for yourselves and live for the one who died for you. And most certainly we do this with our finances. And by giving, we express our love for Christ. By giving, we also love others. It's better because we love others. It's better than receiving because we can express our love for Him, for God, and for His people. This is a fulfillment of that second part of the greatest commandment, to love others as we love ourselves. Well, loving people that way really hurts when we have to give up something we would do with our time, talent, or treasure and bless someone else with it. That's a tangible way for you to feel the pain of, of loving sacrifice. And love should and does hurt often. And this is what we're called to in giving. This is what Paul says the church in Philippi did for him. He says in chapter 4 that they shared in his trouble. They heard he was in financial ruin. They heard he was in jail in Rome and had nothing. They heard of his poverty and of his destitute condition. And so they took an offering and sent it to him at the hand of Epaphroditus and, and blessed him even out of their own need. He said to the Galatian churches, when you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. Preeminently that law to love one another as you love yourself. And this way, giving is certainly better than Receiving. Have you ever given thought to why is it that some in the body of Christ have more than others do? Is it just because they're smarter? Maybe, maybe it's their family line. Maybe, maybe they've just been blessed by ancestors who were smarter with their money than yours were. What is it, why is it that some in the body of Christ have more than others and others have less than others? Is it because God loves some children more than others? And wants to abundantly supply for them? Well, we know that's not true. Isn't it actually, at least in part, and I would say a large part, isn't it so that the body of Christ can show love to one another? Doesn't it give a, a tangible way for the love of Christ to be shown within the body of Christ? That those who have more can use that to give to those who have less? Whether that's time or of our finances and treasure or of our own talents to bless someone else with a, a skill or a gift 
to encourage and help them. It is in giving that we love God and love others. Giving is also better than receiving because in giving we invest well. We invest well. It's given to us by Jesus that we're to use these physical possessions in life to invest beyond this life. If you were to take time to study all that the Scripture says about money, you'd come across all kinds of truths. Things like, you know, the, the more we own, the more trouble we have with what we own. Or the more we own, the more we feel like we need more to own. Or the, the more we own, the more people will come after what we have to get it for themselves. Those, those are the kinds of truths that Scripture talks about relating to wealth. You can find all of those, by the way, in Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 15. One of the most helpful truths that permeates Scripture, almost from beginning to end, is the reality that money and possessions will all be lost. They will not survive. And I know you know that, but you often operate without that being a North Star truth in your life. All that you currently own will either leave you through financial difficulty or you will leave it through death or the soon return of our Lord. We outlive our money and our possessions. Proverbs 23 and verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is the scripture passage that says, You will not carry a U-Haul behind your hearse. You will go into the ground as naked as you came out of your mother's womb with no possessions to your name. James 1 verse 11, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Isn't this then why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and destroy, and where thieves break in and steal? Why does he tell you that? Because there's no safe investment in this life. No matter what your financial advisor told you about the 30-year plan for that stock, it, it does not matter. It will fade away. It will fly wings and fly away from you, or you from it. He says, rather, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where it can't be destroyed, where it will not decay, where it cannot be taken from us. In other words, Jesus is telling us in Matthew 6 to, to take the things of this life and realize we can't take them with us, but as Randy Alcorn says, we can send them ahead of us. We can use the things in this life to, to build an eternal nest egg for our eternal retirement in God's heavenly kingdom. This is really the best piece of insider trading you'll ever hear. Only for this one, you won't get arrested. You know the stories of the senators who, because of their privileged position, get told by their investment companies, hey, we're about to re release a really bad earnings report. You probably should pull your stocks. And so the senator sells all their stocks at a high price, and two days later, the earnings report comes out, and the stock crashes, and they get off scot-free, and everybody's raising rabble about how they had insider information. 
listen, Christian, you have insider information about how this all works. This is the greatest piece of insider information you could ever have, and that is nothing in this life goes with you. Investing in this life is worthless. It's corrupted. It decays. It's taken away from you. Rather, you can give through the use of these things today toward an eternal investment that has unending and unbreakable value. And we do that by how we use the treasures and time and talents of this life. And by giving, we set our minds and our hearts on eternity. As Jesus said in that text, where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. In other words, our love and our affection will follow where we spend our money. You know this to be true. Just think of your last major purchase. Well, that was a piece of equipment or some nice thing in your home. You were mindful of that the next time the kids came in the room, weren't you? Making sure they took care of it and didn't spoil this thing you spent lots of money on before you got got to enjoy it. But when you give sacrificially and joyfully and you invest in eternal matters, your heart follows that. You love that. You've invested financially in it and you want to know how it goes. So you want your love for the Lord to increase. You want your spiritual life to be inflamed, your desire for the things of the Lord to grow and abound. One tried and true method is to give to the Lord. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is also why Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich in this present age in 1 Timothy 6 to not be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Rather, he says, you're to hope in God who richly gives us all things to enjoy. And then he says, charge them to do good and to be rich in good works and to be ready to share all that they have. And then listen, he roots that in an eternal promise. He says, in that way, you're storing up for yourself treasures as a good foundation for the future. So you may take hold of that which is truly life. That sounds just like Jesus in Matthew 6, doesn't it? Paul's taking Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and putting them in new clothes in 1 Timothy 6. Calling us to use riches of this present life to invest in treasures for the life to come. And Beloved, I, I don't know what your financial status is today, but you just need to know you're, you're part of the generation who are the richest Christians who have ever lived. Never before has there been a, a generation of believers in the Western world like we are in that have had the financial means we have. And obviously with such great treasure comes great responsibility. And by using it well and giving rather than receiving, we're putting our money in the best investment possible. The one which brings eternal rewards. You might wonder, well, maybe I need to I need to throttle my giving so that I can extend my generosity. I need to give a little here and a little there so that I can continue to have enough to continue giving. That's that's not the economy of Jesus. He says in Luke 6 that we're to give and God will give to us. In fact, he goes on to say in that text, God actually will outgive us. He'll, he'll give to us in greater measure, stamped down and pressed upon and shaken until full. 
that's fleshed out further in 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul, again, is encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous in, this, in their giving. And he says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. He goes on in that text. You can read it later. He goes on in the text to say, God will make all grace abound to you so that you might abound in every good work. And then he says in verse 11 of that text that the Corinthians will be enriched in every way so that they can be generous in every way, which will produce more thanksgiving to God. You see the, the rhythm of God's economy. How he uses finances in response to our giving. Your generosity will be carried along by God's all-sufficient grace. And then he'll supply you with more so that you can give more so that he can receive thanks and glory more. Certainly you've heard the story of R.G. Letourneau. This is the classic example of this truth, and I have to say it. He invented earth-moving equipment and built it and sold it, and his company took off. And he determined early on to give 90% of his income away to the work of the Lord. And he said this, the money came in faster than he could give it away. Letourneau said, I shovel it out and God shovels it back, but he has a bigger shovel. See, when we, in, when we give, we invest well. And God blesses that investment with increased ability to do more good to the praise of his name. By giving, we also grow in contentment. Giving is better than receiving because we grow in contentment when we give. In this age of great affluence, one of the constant battles in our hearts is the battle for contentment. Every day, your, your stuff and your accounts are screaming at you to unsettle you, to cause you to worry, to cause you to look ahead and wonder how it's all going to turn out. And the more we get, the more we increase our anxiety. The more we handicap ourselves to be content. When we give, we're taking a spiritual blowtorch to the weeds of discontentment in our heart. By giving, we're fighting the fleshly impulse to get more. We're declaring to our soul that we have more than enough. In fact, we have so much soul that we're going to take what we have and give it away. Listen here, anxiety. I'm going to put you in your place under God's throne. We've been given all that we need and more than we need, and we're going to show that by how we give. There's two classic New Testament texts dealing with contentment. The first is Philippians 4. Paul from a Roman jail cell writes to the church in Philippi and says to them, I have learned in whatever state I am, whether in plenty or in need, I have learned to be content. He said, I've learned the secret of that contentment. And he goes on to say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a verse for your basketball shoes. That's a verse for contentment in hard things. That your sufficiency in all realities is found in Christ alone. And you can face whatever difficulty or blessing that God brings your way through Christ. And your heart can be settled and quieted before Him as you trust in Him. Because Christ is enough for you. That's what Paul says. I can do all things through Christ. 
When you give, you're saying that you believe this. When you give, you're saying that you count Christ's agenda as more important than your own, that you're well supplied in Him. And even though you could think of of 10 or 20 other things to use that money for, that would directly benefit your life and bless you. You're choosing to be content with what God has currently given you. And you're giving that back to the Lord to say to the Lord, I love you and am content in you. The second text dealing with contentment in the New Testament that's so pivotal is 1 Timothy 6, where we're told that godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, the text goes on to say, with these we will be content. In other words, getting more stuff is not great gain. Getting your retirement account to that level is not great gain. Getting that vehicle is not great gain per se. What is great gain, though all those things are necessary. I'm not telling you to not be wise in all those things. The scripture does not tell you that. But in those necessary things, know that the greatest gain you can have is contentment with godliness. In his classic book on contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan author, defines contentment this way. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You probably need to grab that quote and print it out and put it somewhere in your life that you can see. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If you give, you will grow in that disposition as you give in into the Lord. Burroughs goes on to say that a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. We like to think that way, that if I just had this, then I would be content. And it's always that level that's just out of our reach, right? If I just had that level of income or that level of of vehicle or that level of of whatever, then I would be, you know, that's all I want, Lord. Just that, I'll be fine. Well, look back on your life. What's happened? You've gotten to that level and now you're not fine anymore, right? Because that's not the key to contentment. The next level is not the key to contentment. Addition to your life is not how you come to contentment. Rather, it's by subtraction. He goes on to say that is his way of contentment, not so much by adding to what he would have or to what he has, but rather by subtracting from his desires so as to make his desires and his circumstances even and equal. So Burroughs is counseling you to say that if you want to be content, you need to subtract from your desires to match your circumstances, the the providence of God currently at play in your life. And I don't know of a better way to help me do that than to give. Because by giving, I'm, I'm cutting off the weed of my illicit, sinful, selfish desires to use that money for myself. To attain to that next level where I, whereby I think then I'll be content. And one of the most tangible ways you can subtract from your desires and grow in contentment is to give to the Lord. Lastly, giving is better than receiving because it pleases God. 
beloved, just stand amazed for a second that your father who made you and redeemed you, whose grace is at work in you, who is currently working to sanctify you, by whom all good things in your life are directly from him. You must work out this salvation with fear and trembling, but it is all of him, through him, and for him, by him. Stand amazed that, that this heavenly father would look at you and be pleased with you. As Christians, we, we want to... Think of God as an angry father, I think. As one who's carrying the billy stick of, of parenting, just waiting to swat us again. Got out of line again, just waiting to, to bring it to us and whack us. Like spiritual whack-a-mole. He's waiting for us, our heads to pop up and sin again. Certainly our father disciplines us, but beloved, he, he loves us and is pleased with us. And there's an explicit text in Hebrews 13 by which we know that when we give sacrificially, we please God. It says this, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you look at the broader context in Hebrews 13, the author there is rooting this sacrifice in the sacrifice of Jesus. Because of what Christ has done for us, and we should respond. We should go to him outside of the camp and because we have no lasting city here, we should seek treasure that is in the world to come and give sacrificially to our Lord. And the text says he's pleased with us when we do. Why is he pleased with us? You remember what he said back in Hebrews 11? That God is not pleased with anyone except unless those who walk by faith. By faith we please God because we believe that he is God and that he rewards those who seek him. And so when we give, we walk by faith, believing it. It's counterintuitive to give away from something that I think I need or could use and to give that to the work of the Lord. It doesn't make human sense, but it makes sense in God's economy. And you walk by faith in it and you, you please God because you believe he exists and he's worthy of your worship in this gift. And you believe he rewards those who walk in accord with his way. And that does not mean the health and wealth prosperity lie that he will bless you, that that, that money in your wallet is just a, a seed money by which you provoke God to, to bless you and give you all that you want. That's heresy. But it does mean that God delights to respond in our giving to bless us with more as we please him and can serve him all the more. So I ask you again, is giving better than receiving. Of course it is. How is giving better than receiving? It is, it is better because by giving we worship God and we love God and we love others and we invest well and we grow in contentment and we please God. May God inflame our hearts to be sacrificially generous as we walk in a manner worthy of his calling upon our lives in every way, our time, our talents, and our treasure. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your love, which abounds to us through your Son. Thank you for enriching us in Christ. He who was rich, becoming poor for our sakes, that we could be given unending, everlasting wealth in him. Help us, Father, to live in this life as though that is true. And to believe your word when 
you've told us giving is better than receiving. Would you fill our hearts with joy as we can give of ourselves and of all that you've blessed us with for your purposes? Would you use us in that so that your name would be praised and that you would be thanked as the God who provides all of our needs? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.